Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it is Monday, July 27th here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing well, staying safe and healthy as the battle against the coronavirus rages on. Coming up today on the podcast is a really great and fun interview I did earlier today with NBA writer for Bleacher Report, Jerome Weitzman. He has been covering all things NBA, and he's written a tons of great articles this whole season, really his entire professional career. I was pumped that uh, he took the time to join me today on the podcast to talk all things NBA Restart. We got into kind of just what life's like in the bubble, some things about certain teams that he's written about, and just other teams we both found super interesting, and, and some things going forward. So... I'm really excited about that and uh, really excited for everyone to get a chance to hear that and uh, get a chance to listen to your own talk about the hoops because he's a he's a great, great writer and, and he's been doing great work. So really excited for that. Before we get to the interview with your own, as I mentioned last week on the podcast, as a part of the recommendation corner, I'm going to continue this little mini series of talking about Jack McCollum's book, Seven Seconds or Less. I started this book. I'm a uh, several chapters in now, and it's really good. It's obviously really good. It's you know it's one of the foundational, most talked about MBA books of the last ten or twenty years. So really enjoying so far. There's there's a few things that I've really enjoyed about the first few chapters that uh, really stand out to me so far. Is one is just all just the competing egos and agendas that go on in the NBA. It's it's something that we. Th- See now everyone kind of talks about that all these guys are best friends and with AAU and everything, everyone, all these superstars and players, they're all friends. But it's really interesting when, when you compare this to the Victor Machine book by Ethan Sherwood-Strauss that there's so many competing agendas within an NBA roster of it's not just trying to win the games, but it's they're all on contracts and it's, yes, we're winning, but am I getting my numbers? Am I getting my minutes? Am I getting my shots? Because that's going to affect them when it comes time for the next contract negotiation in the summer because most guys in the NBA are not superstars who have multi-year deals locked up. They're usually guys on one- to two-year contracts who are looking to perform so that they can get that next contract. So it's just really interesting. to He talks about you know, a guy like Sean Marion, who was an awesome, awesome player, but in the public perception, he was the third guy behind Steve Nash and Amari Stoudemire, even though he was so important to what they did. And, and guys like Mike D'Antoni called him, you know, maybe sometimes even their most important player, like the X Factor. And it was just interesting to see, like, they're winning games, winning more than 50 games a year. And it was just interesting to see, like, the agenda and the and the egos of just like, hey, I people want to win, but they also want to get credit for for the things that they're doing. I thought that was really interesting. Another thing that's really stuck out to me is just while, while you're reading this, kind of the whole uh, part of the book that's how it got written is that McCollum's writing this from like the fly on the wall perspective of following the team throughout the season. And it's just really interesting because this type of access, it's easy to say it would never happen again today, partially just because books like this, like Seven Seconds or Less or Moneyball, season on the brink. A lot of it is that when you get this inside look into, into these teams, it impacts the rest of the league, and sometimes these secrets get out, and, and the league kind of copies. But it's also just with the way with the player empowerment movement now, it almost feels like this book would be written 
with the with almost like a player uh, influence on it. It wouldn't just be a reporter going through the team to write this. It would be a reporter or someone who works for a superstar player's production company or a media company. They would try to control the story and control the narrative of like, hey, here's what it was like to be a fly on the wall writing the book of what it was like to be player X's year in 2019, 2020. And I think that's kind of where, if we get these books again in the future, if, if they are books and not mini TV shows or YouTube vlogs or podcasts or stuff like that, I think it'll be more from the player perspective rather than a great, great reporter like Jack McCollum working through Sports Illustrated, going through the team and saying, hey, can I do this? I think it'll come from more of a player perspective. And one of the most interesting X's and O's things before uh, we talk about the NBA bubble coming up, just about like the X's and O's of learning about the NBA coaching is that they're getting ready for the 2006 playoff first round series against the Los Angeles Lakers. The Phoenix Suns were the two seed, the Lakers were the seven seed. And obviously that year was, it was the year where Kobe was just a one-man show because he had teammates like Smush Parker and Kwame Brown and Luke Walton, Sasha Vucevic. It was really just Kobe and everyone else. Yes, he had Lamar on it, but it was really just Kobe and you know Kobe. And it was interesting because the the guys and the coaches for the Suns were really debating on what were the best strategies to guard him. Is it to go with the strategy of double team and trap him and basically make everyone else beat them? And it was interesting because he had some of the assistant coaches who were talking about when Kobe does that, he's going to make the right plays. And by doing that, it's going to give the other guys confidence on the team that they're a part of it and that they're in this together. Or do you go with the mindset of Kobe can have whatever he wants, you know, let Kobe score 50. But when Kobe does that, his other teammates kind of talk about this with competing egos and agendas. They feel left out and they get frustrated at Kobe for quote-unquote ball hawking, even though he's on fire and he's scoring a lot, they just don't feel like they're a part of the game. And so it will hurt their team overall if Kobe has a 45 or 50-point game. The Suns felt like they could win that game 105 to 97 and let Kobe have his 50. So it's interesting to see like the the true back and forth between the coaching staffs about, hey, how's the best way to go about this? And when the most fascinating part was that they debated for like two or three days, and really it was like an hour before game one when they firmly decided, okay, this is what the strategy is. This is what we're going to do in game one and for the series. And so that was just really interesting to see just how much, obviously a lot of debate goes into how to guard a guy like Kobe Bryant, but I was just really interested to see just how late in the game it, it went until they came up with a firm game plan and just how good guys are in the NBA that they can understand and adapt and pick up the game plan for that series just so close to the start time i guess that's just a credit to how many games they play and how much travel they do and just being able they're just so good that they can pick up all these things on the fly but so that's what i'm really those are the three things that i'm really enjoying so far in the book and i'm looking forward to talking more about it as as i keep reading so briefly before uh your own comes on the podcast and i play that interview i just want to give a quick setup and description of what the NBA bubble is like in the format, just in case anyone has not been following all the details. I know a lot of people, you know, have full-time jobs and real life outside of just following the news from the bubble down in Orlando. So just a quick 
summary of just what's going on. So the NBA has brought 22 teams down there. It's the top eight teams in both the East and West, and basically every team that was within four and a half games of the playoffs. So that includes teams like New Orleans, Sacramento, San Antonio, Portland, and the Washington Wizards. That makes up the uh, and Phoenix is down there too. That that kind of makes up the 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 twenty two. So it's a twenty two game. Uh, sorry, excuse me. Twenty two teams down there. Each team will play eight regular season games, quote unquote regular season games that uh, will precede the playoffs. Those eight games will be will determine the seeding. If there's between the eight for for the eight seed, if if the gap between the eight and the nine seed is anywhere within four. And a half games, then there'll be a play-in tournament, which is basically just a uh, potential two-game series between the eight and the nine seed, where if the eight seed wins the first game, they advance to playoffs. The nine seed would have to win back-to-back games against that eight seed to get to that playoff spot. And so, obviously, a lot has been made of the bubble. It's a closed campus environment down in Orlando, so the NBA has basically rented out three big resort hotels down there. For all the guys who are down there, the players, league personnel, staff, uh, media, they are staying at these hotels. They're not allowed to leave the hotels. Uh, composite, I think that they are now they are now allowed to go to the other NBA hotels, but they can't leave and and go to watch an MLS game that's down in Orlando either. It's at the Disney World complex, so they have full access to everything. They just can't leave the hotels. They do daily coronavirus testing, and they get their results back that that same day. That's a whole part of this whole thing is that they're getting tested every single day. They have very, very strict quarantining protocols. Every guy, when they were down there, had a mandatory 48-hour quarantine. Guys who have had to leave and come back, it's anywhere between four and 10 days of quarantine. So they're doing a really great job with just the whole bubble set up down there. So if there's anything I forgot there, my apologies. It's all online and you can follow it. I uh, just wanted to give a quick summary of that. So so now that we did that, we're going to hit the music. And when we come back is my interview from earlier today with Jerome Weitzman, NBA writer, Bleach Report. Joining me today on the podcast is a special guest. He's a current NBA writer for Bleach Report, Yaron Weitzman. He has been covering all things NBA this season and has written some great pieces this year, including a few that I hope we can touch on today. I'm pumped he's taking the time to join me. Yaron, how's it going? Okay, man. Well, I guess the only trust before I said good, but then we realized that's a lie, right? Yeah. So we're all, uh, just okay, right? So exactly. Hang it in, whatever phrase you want to use. Right, sure. So, so kind of just... Just jumping right into it. After a four-month-long pause, hiatus due due to the pandemic, the NBA is returning with official games that count for real on th- on on Thursday. The league is utilizing this bubble-type concept where it's a closed campus at Disney World in Orlando. The teams have been down there for a few weeks now, practicing and scrimmaging and, re- and t- to get ready for the resumption of the regular season. Just what are you hearing from the players or, or, or just people who are down in the bubble about what their experience has been like so far? Um, well, so what I'm hearing, you know, well, the media access is definitely different. I don't know how much, you know, I talked to a few people, but um, a lot of us are kind of limited to the Zoom calls, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is a whole separate conversation. No, I think... Um, it seems, I think my read on this is that it's been fine. You know, it's like, that's, I know that's not a very descriptive word, but just yeah. a little, yeah, it's just fine. Like they're all, 
fine. They all, they, it was neither first. They're bored, but there's stuff to do, but there's a lot of hours in the day. I right. mean, that's, coaching would be different, but just imagine if you're a player, right? Like, you practice the most amount of time, what, five hours, if you're putting in, like, two and a half hours of, like, weightlifting and shooting on the side, right? Mm-hmm. Not accounting the practice. And that's even pushing it, correct? Like, that's not, yeah. people aren't spending that much time doing it. So let's say, let's say that you're that guy who's going to do an extra three hours of work other than your two-hour practice, which, again, is, most people aren't, and you probably shouldn't. Um, other than that, you still got, like, seven, eight hours to fill. Right. Day. And so what are you, what are you doing? Um, and there's only so many, only, you know, only so many uh, fishing. Only exactly. Trips, I don't know what you want to call them, expeditions you can do. <laughs> so I think that part. Um, but I, people, I mean, I know this from my perspective, I thought the games, I was surprised how say, normal or how not strange the game viewing experience was from TV. I think mm-hmm. players found it a little different, coaches did. But I thought that was pleasantly surprised by that, that it didn't feel like I was watching this thing from Mars. Um, you know, now I just go from here. Obviously, like this is the Williams thing, and but now we're all comparing it to baby. You know, we're with uh, what we talked on a Monday morning as baseball seems like it's about to go up in flames. Yeah. Um, so the NBA is definitely ahead of that. Um, it'll be interesting to kind of see. Yeah, it was it was definitely you know as as you're mentioning just the activities to fill the rest of the rest of the day. We've seen you know shotgunning beer challenges, a lot of golf, a lot of fishing, and and JJ Reddick said that on on his podcast, just like he's never had so much downtime of filling the other twelve hours of the day. For sure, for sure, right? It's like these guys, like excuse me, these guys are one man corporations, right? Yeah. It's important to remember that. Even the even the lower like guys we don't think of, um, you know, like a uh, I mean, Kyle Kuzma we think of because he's in L.A. But I just all these guys, they're all one man corporations mm-hmm. in terms of the money they make in terms of all the things circling around them. And I guess I, I think listen, they still have more free time during the day when they're home than right. they realize. But it's less than it's 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 a little bit like you can still with whatever. For sure, um, they have a lot of responsibilities. A lot of people pressing for their time. Media sponsors, teams, workouts, marketing, all these types of things, right? And yeah, all for of sure. That is now gone. Um, and so, how you feel it? One hundred percent. So, kind of as it seems, you know, all, for for the most part, we still have some guys in in quarantine. Everyone is settled into the bubble. Uh, everyone I'm pretty sure who's scheduled to be down there is pretty much down there now. Just pivoting towards just what the ultimate goal of why all the teams are even in this bubble, it's to try and win the 2020 NBA championship. And one of the most interesting teams, I think, going into this restart, your own, is Philadelphia, a team you are quite familiar with. Uh, Coach Brett Brown has announced that Shake Milton will be the team's starting point guard, and Ben Simmons will play almost exclusively the power forward position on offense. Just kind of what do you make of this change and just how it's going to impact the 76ers going forward? Um, I find it fascinating. I'm intrigued, and I think it's great for them. Um for a number of reasons. First, I know we're saying this, you know, they play two preseason games or whatever you want to call them. I don't know, mm-hmm. scrimmages, whatever we're calling them. Um, they look good. Um, you know, it's basically the idea of how do you solve the issue. There's two issues. One, the problem that Al Hawthorne is not a good fit with their 2 and Ben Simmons yep. because you already have two guys who are on shooters. You're adding a third one. Al Hartford can shoot, but there's a difference between somebody, and he, he shot poorly this year. He yeah. was like 34%, and the years past was 37. But even, you know, there's a difference between a big guy who shoots 37% on maybe three attempts a game, and the defense is happy to give him every one, right? He's not carrying any gravity. They're not chasing onto him. They don't live with those shots. If he misses one, he might not take a second. 
versus a guy who's actually a shooter, right? A real shooter who carries a gravity defensive chase and pay attention to and don't want to get off the shot. And that's not Al Horford. And it's tough to have a guy like that next to Embiid and Simmons, right? Who for sure. have clashing skills for the shooting movement. Um, so the idea of Milton is a shooter, a really good catch and shooter, uh, has really good catch and shoot numbers. Um, going back to college, um, Derek Bonner at the Athletic had a good article about that, kind of outlining Milton's catch and shoot history and uh, efficiency. Um, so there's that, and the idea of Simmons at the elbows is a way, you know, they're using with the elbows um, or in the corners. So two things. One, at sure. the elbows in general. At the elbows in general, he's really effective because he's one dribble away. The shot doesn't, it's not, the jump shot thing doesn't matter. He can attack. You can see the whole floor. You can make him kind of unleash him into his weapon. Brett Brown, he's compared to Blake Griffin a little bit there. And I yeah. think, you know, Griffin's a better shooter, but I think that's kind of interesting in terms of what Griffin is in his career now. Um, or a couple years ago, I should say. Um, the other thing is Simmons off the ball. Um, if he's going to take those corner threes like he did the other day, um, that's a huge move for the Sixers in terms of their spacing and how the team works. And the idea that you know he's still going to get plenty of minutes at point guard, whether it's in their backup lineup where Embiid comes off the floor and he'll be paired with Horford and he'll be the primary point guard there, or you know anytime there's a live rebound, exactly. Yeah, you know, transition and he'll push the ball that way. Yeah, yeah. for and sure. Basically, when the ball is being taken out after a make, that's when he's not playing point guard. I yeah. think this version makes more sense to the Sixers and it says something that Brett Brown was willing to do you know Simmons has always been big on I'm a point guard and that's his thing and the fact that he I don't know who uh, proposes to who but the fact that everyone is on board would uh, demonstrate a level of maturity and growth from the entire team in a way the organization in yeah. a way that would be make me optimistic if I was a Sixers fan yeah, it was and it was interesting too when when you think about the Al Horford signing because because when he signed in the summer it was so much was talked about how it gave so much defensive versatility and now they were so big but also specifically to guard Giannis out in Milwaukee yep. that now they had they have three big bodies you know there Embiid Horford who guarded him really well for Boston but it's almost like they kind of forgot or didn't factor into the equation what it would look like the first. 82 to 90 games of the season before potentially facing off against Milwaukee in the Eastern Conference playoffs? So part of it was they, they, they believed Embiid would miss at least 20 games in mm-hmm. the regular season, if not more, yeah. and that you know they, you have Paul Fredrick Center. Um, I do, they also, yeah, you're right, and they also believe that they, I, mean, I think they thought Hulk, Hulk would play better. You know, maybe a hit wouldn't be great, but they thought he'd be a little better on defense. Like, the Sixers were good on defensively, but they were number six. I think the team kind of thought they'd be, like, a number two defensively, right? Yeah. Um, they thought Horford, Horford would shoot a little better. Like, again, maybe not carry the gravity, but maybe be 37%, not 33 or 34. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought it'd be with this games, and then they thought, you know, they thought we would go to the playoffs, and they still believe that, and I guess. You know, it'll be interesting to see now kind of what comes from there. Um, yeah, it's, it, the honest thing is definitely part of it, for sure. And it's and it's also, you know, this the Embiid-Simmons duo is really just one of the most unique and fascinating because they're both so young and so talented with potential seemingly, like, through the roof, but also just spacing issues and just maybe just playing style issues that they don't really mesh. They, they've been very almost frustrating the last few years because they have so much potential, and yet it's like they're not really – capitalizing or realizing it is is there any talk or, or speculation around the league or with or within people who you're talking to potentially at the team that that they may move on or, or break up this duo if, if there's another disappointing postseason run this year um people around the league have been speculating that and other teams for a while you know will this happen will this happen i think you know 
people would make them, NBA people might make fun of like sports media and sports radio, and yet uh-huh. at the end they all throw back like sports radio hosts often. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so and like you know, it's time to break this team up. Like that's that's not happening this this off season or next year. I, I mean, I don't want to be declarative. It, it'd be shocking if somebody was something really crazy or you know would have to happen. Either an issue between the two that has not arisen or someone give them some kind of offer that they you know would have to say yes to, which I don't think yeah. that's possible. But no, I don't imagine those two break. Yeah, but the, you know, we've never seen a superstar pairing like them in terms mm-hmm. of those, oh, really, ever, when skills clash like yeah, that, right? Yeah, for sure. Drastically. Um, and yet, if you look at the, until this new season, the numbers with the two of them on the court in the regular season, not the playoffs, I know it's different, but the regular season, the numbers of the two of them sharing the court have always been fantastic. Like, yeah. you know, 10, 12, 15 points better per 100 possessions than opponents. Um, so you can do it. It's just kind of how you're going to build around them is the key question. Yeah, and it, it, it's interesting you bring up the kind of like the sports radio talk about it because so much of it is just like the perception and the narrative around like, oh, this can't work, this can't work. It almost becomes, it feels like a self-fulfilling prophecy of like the expectation then becomes like, hey, this this can't work. They have to blow it up when then you look at their age and you're like, wait a second, they're both so young and we, we still don't really know what this could even be in, in two or three years. But just, for sure, for sure, right. But just so sticking to to the Eastern Conference, the, the favorites and the best team in the East this year was the Milwaukee Bucks. They're on a historic pace uh, prior to the shutdown. The league's best defense, point differential, and record. They were 53-12 and 12 at the time of the shutdown in mid-March. You wrote a really good piece about the Bucks, kind of wondering how this pause has affected their momentum. And momentum in sports can be just one of like the hardest things to get back or, or to regenerate almost in a way. So just with their playoff position locked away, they're firmly, you know, probably the, they're definitely in the playoffs, most likely the one seed. Just how are they going about approaching the eight games uh, restart prior to the playoffs? Uh, for them, I mean, <laughs> the Bucks are interesting, right? They have like very specific um, principles that they follow, and they mm-hmm. stick to those no matter what, right? On offense, they're going to space the floor, Giannis attack, try to find either you go one on one or if the defense helps you shoot threes, ball space, uh, player spacing, you know, ball movement, things like that. Um, a lot of isolation on defense. It's the idea that we're going to protect the rim, we're going to funnel the opponents to into Brook Lopez and Giannis in the paint. We're going to limit. Um, we're going to give up some threes, right? We're okay. We'll yeah. choose who we shoot up, who we go off of, which is interesting. Um, then we're going to break in transition. They're not some, like, they're the opposite of the Raptors, who, you know, throw all sorts of things at you. Um, so for them, I think it's just going to be about momentum things hard. And I don't know. I mean, it's definitely a thing. I mean, the counter to that would be Giannis is healthy. He loves yeah. the season when I'm paused, right? Um, so for them, it's just going to be like we're just rediscovering that cohesiveness, I guess, right? One of the things. So the Bucks. What few things that separate them? Obviously, they have you know the best player in the MVP. Um, they have Chris Middleton, who is maybe the most underrated player in the NBA. Which I know they get another hacky sports radio segment, but I don't mm-hmm. think people realize how good he is. That he went he basically fifty four. I think he is right now yeah. fifty four to ninety, uh, close to all NBA level defense, and he can create his own shot too. Right, he's not just like a spot up shooter. Um, and he's really good in the mid range, which they need. It gives a little diversity to their. Even though they don't like the mid-range shots, they also, you know, lend a little diversity to it. Um, and Brooke Lopez in the idea of being probably the best, or maybe, if not the, one of the top uh, rim protectors and defensive centers in the league, right? Yeah, um, sure. So you have, those, you have those guys. You have talent, obviously, but they're also built on. We know what we do better than anyone else, and we're going to do it, and we're cohesive, and we, we run efficiently and effectively. And I guess it's going to take a little bit to rediscover that smoothness. 
Um, but I think they'll be fine. I guess the only the question with them will, will probably come down to, and this would happen last year, you know, they'll make it first round, second round, but at a certain point, um, are their secondary players going to hit their open shot that teams can teach them? Um, and that's sort of what they've been in against Toronto last year when they voted up against Giannis. Yeah. Um, Giannis is better this year, Middleton's better, but I think at the end, you know, guys like Bledsoe, DiVincenzo, George Hill, Wesley uh, Matthews, you know, are they going to go 10 of 22 from three in games five or six and six in the conference finals, or are they going to go, you know, seven of 22? Right. Yeah, one. 100 percent and and also it's it's interesting you brought up chris middleton because it's it's interesting because you know the focus will primarily be on Giannis in the postseason rightfully so most likely will be the back-to-back mvp one of the top two or three players in the league but chris middleton is also so important to their team and and he has a really interesting couple months coming ahead he signed that max contract last last summer firmly cementing him as as like the robin to Giannis's batman there just why do you think that Chris Middleton is so severely underrated around the league or just in public perception? And and just also just kind of just like, do you think that he has the right mentality to be this secondary player on a championship team? Um, the first question, I mean, he, he plays in Milwaukee. He's really mm-hmm. quiet, right? And his ascension has been sort of slow and steady, right? Like he was good, he got a little better. I mean, well, I should say, you know, at the beginning he was so rapid, but nobody was paying attention to Milwaukee, right? Yeah. But since over the past three, four years, it's been slow and steady improvement. Um, and obviously, he's fall behind Giannis and all that. Um, and he doesn't talk a lot. Um, so that's one. Two is that he has. I mean, I don't know. The, I'm not, I'm not going to answer your question. I don't know. I find it a yeah. fascinating question, though, because I do think they're going to need him. Him or Giannis, right? Giannis is great, obviously. At a yeah. certain point, you need to get a bucket and maybe not fight going through three guys, you know, whether it's because Giannis is in great fashion or because you don't get the foul calls, you know, it's the, the mid-range thing, it's, we talk about it, but at a certain point, to be able to hit a shot within 6, 8, 12, 14 feet as opposed to getting to the rim, because getting to the rim repeatedly is really hard, getting the conference finals in the final, and somebody on their team is going to have to be able to do that. Um, yeah. Middleton, again, his mid-range numbers are great, his numbers in the clutch this year have not been great, that could be you know, small sample size stuff with this randomness, but somebody among from their team, and again, they lost Brogdon, who is one of the guys who is capable of that, um, mm-hmm. but somebody from their team, and again, you know, meaning probably Giannis or Middleton, we're going to have to see, can you get a bucket? Shot clock going down, um, initial actions were stymied, you know, eight seconds left, you're going to get the ball on the wing, can you go get something with three minutes right. after the game and also, and also in, in the playoffs, while... In the regular season, everyone loves the threes and the layups and the dunks. In in the playoffs, a lot of times, as as maybe those mid range shots in a in the, in a long or large sample size aren't that efficient. But but in the playoffs, so many times games get decided on as as you were saying, getting the ball on the wing and and getting to a one or two dribble pull up jumper. And we saw Kawhi Leonard be so so su- successful at that throughout the whole playoffs last year. Yes. I have this pet theory, like, I would love to try to, like, write about it one day, but the mm-hmm. idea that some of the um, things that we kind of call old-school scout-type um, cliches yeah. are actually matter and more applicable to playoff basketball, right? Like, they yeah. things, everyone's locked in, opponents make a scouting report, people applying, the idea of just get threes and layups don't work, you know, those are just the way you could limit them, Um you know, some of the off-balls, some of the numbers, like Robert Covington was a good example of this. Robert Covington, every defensive metric shows that he's a fantastic defensive player. 
the one area he's a little weak in, though, is guarding his player on the ball, right? He's great off the ball, helping all that stuff, but yeah. staying in front of his man. And, like, you know, the playoffs it comes down to can, that's one of the things that, like, can you stay in front of your man? Right. And I'm convinced that part of the reason the Sixers were a little willing to get rid of him or to let him walk, I should say, you know, and I know it's Jimmy Butler, there are other reasons, but I think they were ready to move on after that Celtics series is that he had trouble staying in front of his man. You see that in the playoffs, like that stuff matters. Can you hit, can you create your own shot? Can you pass? Can you dribble? Can you stay in front of your man? All these basic things that we sort of make fun of as the scout talks about. Yeah. Um, I think in the playoffs, especially as you get deeper, they become more applicable. 100%. So, so going out west now, the Dallas Mavericks through 65 games in the regular season possessed a historic offense led by their two young superstars, Luka Doncic and Kristaps Porzingis. Currently, they are seventh in the Western Conference, matching up against the Los Angeles Clippers, who are extremely talented, but throughout the regular season, and even in this early period in the bubble, they haven't had a lot of continuity uh, with their whole roster and ability to, to kind of play with at full health and full strength. Just kind of what do you make of Dallas's chances of potentially putting a scare either into the Clippers or another Western Conference top seed in, in the first round? I mean, in fact, they're also, I think it was the best offense, or at least Luke and Porzingis were playing for sure, but yeah. I forget exactly. But they're also, and those two on the court, their offense is, I think, the best in the NBA. Yeah. Um, which means, you know, that, that's going to scare anybody. And Luca has the ability to be the best player on the floor no matter who they're playing, even if they're going to get Kawhi or LeBron. It doesn't mean every game, but mm-hmm. he's that good. Um, defensively is going to be the question. I mean, it's so hard to talk now to do this stuff because I imagine there's going to be a lot of chaos here and you get, excuse me, who knows how players will react or adjust and I do think we'll see some upsets. I don't think it'll be the normal chalky NBA 1-2, 1-2 and cup and finals, you know, see what goes from there. That said, so I, I think the Mavericks are fantastic and really the ceiling's great and obviously, obviously they have a bright future and I think all teams would be worried about them. Um, that said, I think assuming everyone's healthy, and when I say healthy, I mean, you know, a quarantine standpoint also in terms of uh, playable, active on the roster. Yeah. Um, the Clippers and Lakers are both really good teams, like really, really good teams who have all-time good players, um, MV4, all-star level, not better, um, secondary players, Anthony Davis, Paul George, lots of depth, really good defense. Um, most teams are... Also, they have Rick Carlisle, who's a very, very good NBA coach, NBA champion in, from the 2010-2011 season. I think that could be a really interesting thing going forward of just, hey, maybe in this postseason coaching always matters, but maybe it matters a little bit more just with the evolving circumstances and only one day off between games, maybe having the more experienced head coaches. Not that Doc Rivers is an experience, but just maybe that provides an advantage over a guy like you know Frank Vogel, who's been in some big games, but never really at that championship level. Yeah, Vogel, yeah. I mean, Carlisle's obviously great. Vogel, he, I mean, he took those... Um, Pacers teams. Those teams for seven games. Yeah, yeah. So exactly. He was with the Pacers. Um, and clearly the coach, I mean, we've never had a less, a more drama-free season from a head, involving a head coach um, with a LeBron James-led team. 100%. Um, so, clearly, so clearly Vogel's connecting there somehow with the team. Um, 
Especially, yeah. Also, just especially when when he got hired, so much of the talk was, I think it was, you know, Jason Kidd was was his lead assistant. So much of the talk was, oh, LeBron loves having former players as his head coach. You know, Jason Kidd's there to to take Vogel's job in December or or January. Exactly. And as you said, just as as drama free as it's been, it's it's been amazing. Yeah, no, it does. Um, I think most people, like a lot of NBA reporters, are joking. A kid will be the coach by November. Um, yeah. Obviously, as that happened. So. The other team I want to touch on briefly is the Utah Jazz. They were one of the most talked about teams during the shutdown period, mainly just because they had the misfortune of being the first NBA team affected by the coronavirus, and it was infamously Rudy Gobert's positive test that shut down the entire league. And a lot has been made of the Gobert and the their other star player, Donovan Mitchell's relationship the last few months. There's been a ton of great articles about it. It's one of those, as you talked about, like the talk radio topics of conversation is, is their relationship just what are you hearing about their team's chemistry so far down in the bubble and just how they are approaching that pair going forward um okay so i can't I'm, i haven't done much reporting on the team okay. i can't i can only speak from afar yeah in terms of utah um i can say i got a kick out of the idea that well it's okay well i got a kick out of the idea that um that like a coronavirus not, the, not that the coronavirus is funny but that a coronavirus um, positive test is going to be a thing that breaks up down the mission it's like a weird thing um, yeah. talking to people before the bubble and other people around the league and like you know you talk or I not you I would talk to assistant coaches who played against them this season and you, they would say you know you could see you could see their issues on the court between them even before that and they, they both talk about this right I think um was Tim McMahon at ESPN had a great article about that. Mm-hmm. Um, Gobert opened up a little bit and he clearly did great reporting. And the idea that, you know, Gobert clearly wants the ball, he'll be active, not getting it, things like that. Gobert yeah. had some great quotes that ESPN article about like, Great quotes. I, I don't remember exactly, but the idea being if I was if I was a kid, I, I would be more interested in Donovan Mitchell than the also like who wants to be the center to play defense, right? Yeah. Those lines. Um so yeah, it's interesting. Um it does seem strike me I don't know the background there. It does the idea that Gobert obviously acted um, silly when, um, when the whole thing came down, touching mm-hmm. the quarters, microphones, and all that. That said, we know so little about the virus for all we know, like, it came from someone else, right? Yeah. And it does seem like Mitchell, he has been apologetic. It does seem like Mitchell, I don't know. There, to use it, there, there seems to be some immaturity in how he was handling this, unless there were some deep seated issues before, which maybe there were. Um, it'll be interesting to see how they react here. The bigger issue, I mean, but the Bogdanovich injury hurts them. Intended, obviously. Um, yeah, I'm fascinated to see kind of what they do. I thought I was intrigued by them before the season. Conley also was not playing yeah, well this year. Really struggled. Really, really struggled. Just yeah, can't that's shoot. Big, that's a big letdown. Yeah, for sure. So, player development, and you wrote a great piece about this. Player development is now. I think one of those, those most crucial parts of the NBA because players are getting drafted younger and younger. They're, you're spending less and less time in, in college. And also just so many of these guys are being picked on a lot of times the basis of their potential. And so it's so important for teams to really help the players develop and maximize their potential. You wrote about this with the Miami Heat and that the success that they've had in developing their players so much. You know, you, you focus on Duncan Robinson and Tyler Harrow and uh, Derek Jones Jr. Just what is it about Miami's system for player development that allows them to succeed in this area? Because it's not like the other teams aren't trying, but why are they so much more successful so far than a lot of other teams? 
Um, it's interesting, right? I think a lot of it's just the simple stuff, but that mm-hmm. just sounds it sounds really simple. But then you get it into an NBA ecosystem, and it becomes competing you have competing agendas and egos, and it becomes really difficult. Um, the idea of everyone being on the same page, executives, coaches, assistant coaches, players, everyone knowing what the team wants, what's expected. Everyone knowing that if I, you know, if I play well, the coach is going to notice. He pays attention. He talks to the assistant coaches, cares what they say. Um, the GM, the executives are watching. We all know on the same thing. It's all this basic stuff, just the cohesiveness um, and the unity, the, the united front and that a lot of teams don't have. Again, these competing agendas, right? Maybe the coach and the GM aren't getting along and mm-hmm. the owner wants to know why a team's playing poorly and the GM's going to say, well, my coach isn't developing my guys. I got a big guy. And the coach is going to say, you know, I can't develop these guys. The GM got me junk, right? For example. <laughs> right. Um, and the players don't know who to line, who to trust. And that stuff becomes very obvious. Um, so that's one. It's also, and the Heat apply that to how they draft players. They draft players knowing what they want out of them and what they're going to do. And like Duncan Robinson is a funny example. Not funny, an interesting example. You know, a lot of teams would have got a guy like that and say, oh, you can already shoot. Let's devote all your time to everything else. Yeah. And they worked on rounding out a game, but their thing was also, no, you're a, you're a really, you're say a 9.5 on shooting and scale 10. We're going to make you a 10. We're going to make you a 10.5 even, right? We're yeah. going to make you not just a good shooter, but the best shooter. Yeah. And we'll worry about rounding out the games after because you're never going to be an elite ball handler or creator, right? You'll figure yeah. out a way to hold your own there. But we're going to, you know, work on accentuating your strengths that you have, enhancing the strengths that you already have. And that's because we drafted you knowing that. Like we drafted you to shoot, so we want you to be the best shooter possible. Uh, so it's interesting. A lot of teams just don't have those that, that vision, those ability to be united and in communication with everyone. Um, the entire and so player development is going to continue to be a bigger and bigger topic and just grow in importance because starting this year, the there's going to be a new NBA G League select team full of all-star, basically high school players who have decided not to pursue college basketball. And it's just going to be this NBA sponsored G League team of basically top prospects. Just what are teams thinking about just this new select team of high school stars and just what may it mean for player development going forward? It's, I mean, yeah, everybody say it's become the new buzzword around the NBA, right? Like, everyone wants it. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, the idea is, and we've come a long way. Like, I remember I wrote a story at Sebastian Telfair, two, I guess, four, three years ago, four years mm-hmm. ago, and he talked to people about when he came into the league, and it was the idea that, like, player development, there was no player development program. There was nobody worried about them off the court. There was maybe one person. Now teams have entire staff devoted to these guys. When they say yeah. development, it doesn't just mean working on your pick and roll needs, but it means, you know, making sure you're taken care of off the court too. You know, 18, 19 year olds making millions of dollars. Um, so that part, I think the NBA for the most part, most teams have a handle on now. That part of the thing, that part of it, the idea that these are kids, we need to help protect them. Um, and the kids, they all come in also more professionalized than ever before. Like, Basically, if you're a top prospect, you've been an Instagram uh, celebrity, right? You've been yeah, exactly. in, the, in the public in the public eye since the age of 13, 14, right? You've mm-hmm. been a, in that eye. You kind of you get it. It's different than it used to be, right? This is the NBA. It's the extension of that. Um, so I guess that does help them with the adjustment in a way. It might not make them as well as they might not be as well adjusted as they used to be, right? From mm-hmm. all the things you see, just from anyone becoming a celebrity at the age of 13, 14. But. Yeah. Um, but they are more prepared for the spotlight. Um, so true. that part's different. I, I think it'd be interesting to see what they do. I mean, this G League thing is going to be really fascinating. Um, they want to compete with college. They got a lot of top prospects. I think they're probably helped by the COVID pandemic because the college basketball is a good chance to happen. Yeah. They're all just thinking up with the G League. 
Um, I don't know what it's going to look like, but I do. I I do think we've seen player development come a long way, and I guess it'll be interesting to see if the league knows how to do it in the way that you know we talk about with the Miami Heat. Yeah, for sure. So my last question here, Yaron, and I really appreciate all the time. Since George Floyd's death in late May, social justice has kind of been on the forefront of everyone's minds, especially those in the NBA who have the unique position where they have the power and the platforms to go out and try to promote real change. And there were many discussions before the teams went down to the bubble about if guys were going to sit out the season or what they'd be doing in Orlando to keep the discussion going. The players have been doing just a fantastic job with that thus far, and I really hope that they keep it going. But I'm curious, just as an NBA reporter, how are you planning on covering the restart and the topics of racial injustice and, pub- and, and police brutality and also just the pure basketball parts of it? So how, how interesting you said? Yeah, just, yeah, just, just like the, the, the two topics of just the police brutality and the racial injustice and also like the basketball parts of it. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Right, it's really tough to balance that. Um, yeah, it depends. I mean, one we've seen some guys. Yeah, it's really interesting. Right, so everyone's handling it differently. Mm-hmm. Um, Tobias, a guy like Tobias Harris has been great with it so far. I think in terms of what you, you know, using the media availability to speak calmly and coherently and very specifically about what he wants. You know, speaking about justice for Breonna Taylor, for example. I believe Daniel Kevin the. Uh, Without a bad business, right? I'm bubbling it because I should know the answer. But it's right. I think he's the uh, the prosecutor who in Kentucky is responsible for making the arrest of police officers, right? Tobias Harris is one of these guys who's been calling this out. Um, LeBron did a great job of that the other day, as he often is, he often does. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how they balance it. It's kind of the media to cover that. Too. It's, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's a give and take. Obviously, they're doing great. They're doing excellent work. Um, and I do think they're going to keep holding, keep look, keep using the platform to attempt to hold people in power and just society as a whole uh, yeah. accountable. Um, what's going to happen when, you know, Tobias Harris still, and not to put it on hand, I'll use him as an example. A month from now, if he's suddenly seen justice for Deanna Taylor, will he still be saying something? I think he will, or he would, but, you know, how has is how is he met? I guess what then happens then, like when media members get frustrated, will become a conflict between um, him and them. I, I don't know. It's really interesting. It's really tough. I do think we're going to see the NBA continue to be on the forefront of it. And I hope, I guess the answer is just hope that, that the conversation advances in a way. I totally um, agree. Where, where everyone can just got to get what they're hopes of justice in, in like micro examples, but also bringing a spotlight to areas. You know, the Tulsa, things like the Tulsa Massacre that Westbrook yeah. has making a documentary about what you know, I'll admit, I had never known that mm-hmm. before, right? I'm a white guy, I grew up in New York, I never learned about it. And I think that's also the other part of the NBA can do a really good job with that. And the players can do a really good job and be really effective in bringing light to some of these examples and some of these histories um, that we, many of us are not aware of. For sure. So, your own, I really appreciate all the time. Also, just you wrote a book that came out really recently. It's gotten great reviews. Just, just for anyone hearing you on this podcast for the first time, what's the book about and where can people buy it? It's about the, uh, yeah, if you're listening to this, I'm assuming you're a pretty big basketball fan. Mm-hmm. The book is about the uh, Sixers, Sam Hinkie, and the process. It is called Tanking to the Top. I think you'll like it even if you're not a Sixers fan. I think it's a good, I don't like to think, I should say, that it's a good peek kind of behind the curtain of how things in the NBA work. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, you can get it where other books are sold, as they, as they say. Awesome. And, and just before we go, where can people read you throughout this restart and follow you on, on Twitter? 
Yeah, I'm on Bleacher Report. You can check me out there on Twitter at Yaron Weitzman. Um, at the town, Y-A-R-O-N. Awesome. Well, Yaron, really appreciate all the time. Best of luck going forward and hoping that you know this bubble holds and we're able to crown a champion in, in early October. Amen to that. Amen to that. Thanks for having me on. For sure. That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. You can also follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We will be back later this week. Until then, take care and make it a great day. <laughs>